Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. Uh, I hope everyone is doing okay right now. I know it's a really stressful time. So for the students and parents out there, just please know that the colleges are also going through this and are aware that extracurriculars are being canceled, as well as SAT and ACT administration. So the colleges are already adjusting their expectations of what their applicants can accomplish. Um, just a recent example, a couple of recent examples, Case Western Reserve um, and Boston University have both announced that um, they are going to be test optional for students applying for the fall of 2021. So, so please, hopefully this takes your stress down a little bit. Um, all right, so now let's focus on our show today. Um, I'm really excited about our second segment as I get questions about this particular topic regularly. Um, Tova Tolman and I, she's a colleague, um, f- but formerly of Barnard, Fordham, and Montclair, will be discussing how to determine which program is best right? So most families want to go straight to rankings, but rankings are actually not very useful for this for ranking particular programs. So we're going to explain more why um, in the segment. And for our third segment, we'll be on with Emily Toffelmeyer, who's also a colleague formerly of USC. And she and I are actually going to be talking about her experience as a transfer student, which I think is going to be really interesting because she sort of almost fell into her college experience. And I think it's it's pretty illustrative how she, um, you know, it didn't work too well at her first institution, but worked really well at her second and what she did to make that happen. All right. But first, I'll be talking with Jean Mahan, finance consultant for College Coach, about how to appeal your financial aid award letter. So welcome, Jean. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me today. Oh, thanks so much for being on. And I just want to say this seems particularly applicable right now. I think a lot of people with the stock market downturn are probably really um, (laughs) thinking things look different now than they did before. So, um, So as students are receiving their financial aid packages and planning for the upcoming year, what if they do need more support? Is it possible to appeal a financial aid package? Yeah, this is the question of the hour. We've been getting a lot of questions here at College Coach about that very issue. Um, you know, the world has kind of gone crazy in the past few weeks, and things that looked kind of promising to us in the fall are looking a little different right now. Before we really dive deeper into the appeal, I just want to say that there is a difference between appeal and negotiation. So we're, today we're going to be talking about appealing your need-based financial aid award and how you go about doing that. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a segment devoted to negotiating your merit scholarship. For all you folks out there whose children got merit scholarships, tune in in a couple of weeks, and we'll have that segment on negotiation for you. Um, so appeals are something that families can do at any time. Uh, if, if their circumstances change, say, even in the middle of an academic year, they can always reach out to the financial aid office and make them aware of that and see if there's anything they can do to help. 
So for many of the families in, that are um, have children going to college in the fall, they filled out their financial aid applications maybe in October and November, when, as I said, things might have looked a little bit rosier than they do today. So change in household income is certainly a good reason to go back to the financial aid office and say, hey, you know, we reported our 2018 income, but today it looks a whole lot different. And for some families, it may be that they've been laid off in the past couple of weeks or they've been furloughed. Um, they may be a small business owner, and all of a sudden, they aren't conducting any business, and so they're not, they don't have income. And then there are other um, uh, parents who may be expected to use their annual bonus to pay for college, and that bonus is not going to materialize this year. So those are things that you can reach out to the financial aid office and say, hey, can you take another look at our family situation based on what's going on right now? Um, most of the time, schools are willing to, to take that into account because, you know, if you lost twenty dollars or $30,000 of income or maybe even an entire income, that money isn't really available to you anymore. So they do want to help you in that way. Stock market losses, uh, that's a little bit harder because, again, income drives this formula. And so I think parents are often of the mind that, oh, it's my assets that are hurting me. But assets usually don't play more than 6% of the value being counted towards the family contribution. So, you know, schools may be a little bit uh, less likely to adjust for asset reductions unless they're really significant. My advice is to always just ask. You just never know. They may say yes, and great, you've gotten some more aid, um, but it doesn't hurt to put that out there. Let them know. Sometimes if someone's been just recently laid off, but the possibility of them going back to work in a couple months, the school may say, hey, you know what, let us know what's going on, say, in two, three months, and we'll be able to, you know, um, make an adjustment if, if that's necessary. So that's one of the significant reasons that people can go back to the financial aid office. Some of the other extenuating circumstances might be something like a natural disaster. I mean, recently there was a huge tornado in Tennessee. Um, there's going to be costs associated that with repairs and relocations, possibly having to rent a home for as long as a year while their home is being repaired. And, you know, insurance doesn't always cover all of that. So that's another um, situation where you can reach out. Medical expenses, it's a big one. Um, sometimes people have significant out-of-pocket medical expenses, and especially now with people getting laid off or furloughed, they may have to um, use COBRA, which is, you know, allowing them to participate to continue in their employer's plan, but at a greatly increased cost. Um, or they may have to go out on the exchange and get and get um, insurance, and that's going to be completely self-paced. So those are kinds of things that parents can go back and say, hey, this is what's going on in our family. Can you help us out? So don't ever be afraid to go. They're not going to reduce your aid because you're asking for more, and hopefully they're going to consider your circumstances and give you more. Okay. All right. Great. So, so how do they go about it? I mean, should they be asked, should they be just calling up? Should they write a letter? Um, are there standard uh -huh. forms that they should use? Yep. So first I've checked the school's website to, to see if they have a standard form. I see more schools using that. So if you just go to the school's website and use the search bar and just type in, you know, financial aid appeal form, it will either have the form or it may give you instructions on what documents to submit or where to send this information. And it's going to be different school to school, but because of the way things are right now, I mean, financial aid offices are just 
in over their head right now. They're trying to deal with maybe returning funds because kids have suddenly, you know, left campus in the middle of the semester. Um, They're also trying to award kids that have just been accepted. They've got to think about the kids that are coming, you know, the continuing students. So there's a lot going on, and a lot of financial aid offices, if they're even staffed at all, have a skeleton staff. A lot of, um, we've heard from a lot of our colleagues in aid offices that they're working remotely. So I think right now a letter is the best way to do this. If the storm school doesn't have a standard form, you know, submit a letter. You can attach that to an email and send it in and be really clear about what you're asking for. So, you know, thank you for this uh, award, but we've had a change in circumstance, you know, um, the dad in the family has lost his or his job, and we don't have that income anymore. Or the 529 plan that we were planning to use for Ella's education is suddenly been devalued by at least half. So explain the situation. You know, you had a natural disaster. You've got great out-of-pocket medical expenses. Um, maybe you're you're caring for elderly parents. I spoke to a family a few months ago, and... On the face of it, they wouldn't have been eligible for financial aid based on their income and family size. However, they mentioned during our conversation that they pay $5,000 a month to care for the student's grandparent in an assisted living facility. Well, that's $72,000 a year that's no longer available for college. So that's something the school needs to know about. And as anyone who's filled out a FAFSA knows, there's no place to put additional information. It's just, you know, it's it's just the numbers. So schools want to be able to help, but they don't can't help you if they don't know about that. So, you know, as much information as you can put in, um, give, an, give information about where you can be reached, a phone number, an email address, um, explain that you understand how busy they are, and you'll check back in three to four weeks. So if you have a deadline of May 1st, I would say maybe you'd say check back in three weeks from now. If the deadline has been pushed back to June, which many schools are doing, you could probably give them a a month to, to review it. At some point, they may come back to you and say, we need something. We need some documentation. Okay, you're caring for your elderly parent. Let's see how much that is. We need to see something. I'm sending money to a family member in another country. We need to see how much that is. You know, I have out-of-pocket medical expenses. They'll need documentation of that. If it's because of a change in income, they may request a copy of your 2019 tax return or a W-2. So just be prepared to have those documents and send those along to the school so that they have all the information that they need. Mm -hmm. I wanted to chime in, too, that although at the schools um, at Chicago and at Reed, where I worked, we were very strict about the candidates, uniform candidates reply date of May 1. If there was something Mm -hmm. going on with with financial aid, some extenuating circumstance there, we would on a case by case basis sometimes extend that. So even if a school hasn't extended the deadline to June 1st in general, they might be willing to do it under this circumstance. So I just wanted to kind of exactly. chime in on that one too. Yeah. So Yeah. And I think right. that's that's true on both the admission side and the financial aid side. I, I think you should never be afraid to ask. The worst thing that can happen is they'll say no, but for the most part, they want to work with you. I mean, they they accepted your child. They want your child to enroll, so they don't want to make it difficult for you. Um, so I think, it. you know, you're right. Ask. Maybe you'll get it, but remember to be patient, especially now. I always tell people to be patient, but now I'm saying, you know, get some extra patience because it may take them a little bit longer to get back to you. 
Mm-hmm. And so how different do you think the process is right now than it would have been, you know, a month ago? I mean, it sounds like mm. just that they've got a lot of competing things going on. Right. So I think there's going to be a lot more appeals than there would have been. You know, there's always people that appeal because, you know, their 2018 income, that's two years ago. Maybe 2019 was a lot different. Maybe a parent just got laid off in January. So there's normally a fair number of appeals, but I think there's going to be many, many more based on what's going on right now with people out of work um, and, you know, maybe taking a somewhat permanent hit to their income. So I think there's definitely going to be um, more appeals. And I think with the added issue of financial aid offices having to try to, you know, process refunds to the government for maybe aid or, you know, to their own institutional programs and um, working with their um, student financial services office to process possible refunds for room and board. It's just, it's just a lot going on at one time. It's like the perfect storm of everything hitting at the worst possible time. And this is a very busy time in a financial aid office because, you know, they're admitting students, they're reviewing applications for financial aid, they're sending those out, um, they're getting ready to start reviewing the continuing students, and now they have this that has, you know, kind of exploded on them. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think that people are going to be, um, you know, more, you know, expecting more help, and I, I think they just have to be patient. I was reading... Um, something from a, one of the schools on the East Coast that re, that sent out um, their their acceptances last week, and they were saying in their letter to counselors, you know, we are planning to work with your students and your families. You know, there's going to be designated people listed on the website so that your letter of the alphabet, you can reach out to this individual. If they're not in the office, the call will go to their cell phones. So I think schools are really putting themselves out there to really to really be of assistance during this crazy time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I'm really glad you're on here talking about how busy they are, because I think it's, it's really understandable that given how stressful things are for people and paying for college is stressful anyway. And then on top of mm-hmm. it, there's this uncertainty and delays. And so really understandable that people would be very stressed out, but just remember the mm-hmm. financial aid folks are really stressed out as well. And they're really yeah. are trying to do their best. And they're in the middle of the, you know, the, the virus um, and social distancing yeah. too. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So just, yeah. Counsel yeah. patients. You can be, I think, politely persistent is what I recommend, yes. which doesn't mean getting yes. in touch every day, but does mean saying, okay, you're busy <laughs> right. now. We'll be back in touch in two weeks and, you know, calling yeah. the admission office. Can I get an extension if necessary? That's, that's how mm-hmm. you do it, you know? And so, um, and, and sometimes, the financial aid office on their um, answering machine or voicemail might say something like, you know, due to high call volume, please leave a message and we'll be returning your calls after 4 p.m. That gives them an opportunity to deal with the things that they actually have to be done during the business day. You know, your family's appeal can be something that they work on in the evening. Um, and so you want to make sure that they're, they have the chance to get everything done. Like, like I said, under normal circumstances, this is a crazy stressful time in a financial aid office. You're just, you're just running like you're just running a marathon every day. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just really have a lot of empathy for my colleagues in financial aid offices right now, because it's just, it's even more so it's just on steroids, I think is Mm -hmm. the level of stress. So yes, 
You can be kindly persistent. Just remember that they're under the same kinds of stresses that you are as far as maybe being quarantined, maybe being confined to their homes, um, you know, maybe having a relative who's ill. So there's a lot going on for them as well. So just be kind and, um, you know, and, and know that they're they're not purposely not getting back to you. They will get back to you. It just may be not today. It may not even be this week. Um, mm-hmm. But again, and, and again, if they haven't extended their um, deadline, Again, as Sally said, ask, but they will know that if they haven't extended, they need to, they need to be really, you know, prompt in responding to these requests. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thanks so much, Jean. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Take care, everyone. Okay. All right. So now we're going to be taking a short break, but when I return, I'll be talking with Tova Tolman about how to determine which major or program is best at which college or school. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, we'll now be talking to Tova Tolman, a College Coach colleague. Thanks for joining us, Tova. My pleasure, Sally. Always fun to be here. All right. So, Tova, I always, or I shouldn't say always, but on really a lot 
of calls with families. I get asked about what is the best department for computer science or what is the best department for psychology or what is the best department for history or whatever it might be. And I never really know how to answer that question, um, especially because I think that they really want some sort of definitive answer. Like Michigan is better than Caltech, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to even think about. They're both amazing, Uh right? So, um, you know, so so anyway, how do you answer that question? Well, I think the reason why it's so hard to answer is how you measure what's best for one is going to vary from student to student and is really dependent on the priorities that they might establish for themselves. So you have to think about what experience is going to matter to your particular student or to you. So maybe for one student, they really care more about what research opportunities are available or internship experiences or maybe faculty with professional experience, whereas other what facilities are available on campus in terms of the latest microscope because they're excited about cellular biology more than molecular biology. So now weighing who has the best biology department isn't so helpful because how are we measuring what's best? And students are going to have different needs. So I think you and I could talk through what are so many of the various things to consider and to research, but I think the reason why that's such a hard question to answer is it's going to vary dramatically at times from student to student, regardless of what any sort of ranking list says is the best. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and I think, I mean, one of the things that I do actually bring up a lot is whether students want to do research. Some schools are mm-hmm. going to make that more available to others, you know, than others mm-hmm. will. Um, and I also try and ask, you know, do you want to go to graduate school or not? Or do you want kind of a one and done, like you, you go through four years and you're done? I mean, all of those things can impact what you might want in a particular school. Sure. Um and what are some yeah, of the even other... the availability? Go ahead. I was going to talk about the availability of research even can vary so dramatically at school to school in terms of what sort of style. If it's a small liberal arts college, liberal arts and sciences, they might still have extensive science research opportunities. Uh, perhaps you're working more directly with the faculty member, where at a large R1 research institution, which has incredible research on campus, perhaps you don't really have access to work directly with the faculty. You're working more with graduate students. And and who are you doing that research with even could change dramatically. And some students might be excited to be doing it with grad students because it's at this large research university, perhaps with more advanced resources or facilities. Other students like the idea of working directly with their professor at a smaller environment. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are some and I want to dig more into kind of, um, you know, student by like sort of program by program, what might yeah. matter. But for now, let's also move on to I mean, another thing that, that when you and I corresponded about this via email, you mentioned like outcomes, things like that. So mm. why don't you elaborate on that? Sure. And that's definitely something to consider uh, as you're ver- as you know, you're researching the variables, what might job placement look like at this particular school? Go onto their career development website and see what are students doing after they graduated? What kind of network do they provide through alumni? What are some of the average starting salaries for newly minted graduates? And maybe they also have staff for average salary for five years out or 10 years out uh, to see what that might look like. And those outcomes can also help weigh uh, sort of and make sense of 
how some of these resources that are available to you during the school might impact what's actually happening when students graduate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's dig into how are, what are some of the ways that students can find out about some of these things. And obviously visits yeah. are off the table for now, but eventually they will be back on the table, hopefully for the class of 2021. Um, <laughs> and uh, so... You know, but like in the meantime, what are some things that people can really uh, can be doing and what are some of the questions they can be asking? Well, you know what? This is something that doesn't really change in the environment that we're in today. We're we're all kind of staying home and uh, not visiting campuses. I don't think I would have done this research online or uh, on campus anyway. This is the sort of thing that you're best off diving into in depth through websites, computers, phone calls, and emails. And sure, maybe you could schedule an elaborate visit to where you have four meetings set up back-to-back-to-back and you happen to get the right faculty members and right administrators all answering questions for you on the same day. That's that's kind of hard to do. This sort of research is is meant for (laughs) isolation and quarantine and uh, filling time when you're a junior stuck at home um, or a sophomore. Uh, For very large-scale sort of macro-level research, I love Big Future. And Big Future is uh, College Board's website, bigfuture.org. And that can give percentages of students in different majors, talk about what some of the resources are available at the school from a very macro level. Um, And then also at the macro level, you have guidebooks like the Fisk Guide to Colleges, their site. But at the micro level, Honestly, the best thing to do is to get into the individual school's websites and dive deep into their departmental websites and look through the details of the program, what classes are available in that department, how many faculty members do they have in that department, and going through all of these data points in the individual school's uh, resources and websites is probably how you're going to get the most specific micro-level research uh, for school by school. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you mentioned um, faculty. Like, let's dive a little more. What are some of the things that they should be looking at um, about the faculty? Sure. Like, why why does it matter to look specifically at the faculty? I think a lot of students think that, like, all biology departments, that there's a ranking, but that otherwise they all teach the same things, you know, for example, or yeah. engineering or business. So so let's let's dive into that some more. That is a great question, and I think a common misconception. And for some students who have a very sort of surface level in a particular area, they aren't necessarily going to be able to understand the nuance and the difference between uh, the biology professors really focusing their research on flora or on algae and on what are some of the different pieces going on. But for some students who have a little bit of more experience in a field that they might be interested in, in a particular discipline, it might be really important for them to understand who are the faculty, what courses do they teach. All of the websites are going to have bios from the faculty members, show their academic work, show how many courses they actually teach for undergraduate students. Is this incredible Nobel laureate that's on the school faculty, not actually teaching class, but maybe once every other year? Or is this a faculty member who's teaching three classes every semester, two classes every semester, and they're available in the department? How many full-time 
faculty members does that department have uh, versus uh, adjuncts who are coming in and going and don't necessarily have office hours and aren't uh, full professors or associate or assistant professors at the university. Are the faculty members actually members of that department or are they borrowed from another department? And these kinds of things can help you understand a little bit more of how not just large of how popular is that major, but how well resourced is that major? What is going to be the ratio like in the individual department for uh, faculty to staff and to students? And what access are you going to have to said faculty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, um, just to highlight that, I worked at University of Chicago and their economics department maybe has more Nobel Prize winners than any other university in the world, or it's certainly close to the top. But I can promise you that only one of those Nobel Prize winners actually taught undergraduates. The rest of them mm-hmm. were solely working with graduate students and doing their own research. Um, it may have changed now. I haven't been at Chicago for a while, um, but it's probably hasn't, <laughs> you know, like... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so just just know that like because certain kinds of research are being done doesn't mean undergraduates have access to them. Um, so just just something to be aware of as well. Yeah. And you know All I right. have uh, I think a little specific insight into into this one in terms of how the tenure process works out. But if you really want to get creative, is to try and get a sense of how much will undergrad faculty care about teaching. It's, you see if they publish on the general academic page. How is tenure granted? This is something all faculty want. And do they have to satisfy certain check marks in three different categories of teaching, service, and research? Or do they really just have to do research and teaching or research and service? If it's not all three, teaching might not be a priority. Maybe teaching isn't even on the list of what faculty members need to do in order to get tenure. And if you can find out that information, that'll really give you a sense of the university or the college's commitment to having their faculty members teach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll admit that this is, you know, this is part of my bias towards kind of small and mid-sized schools is that they pretty much universally are going to prioritize teaching. So again, not that you can't have incredible teachers at large universities, but it's, it's not always a priority of the university itself. And so checking into that, I think is, is really quite important. So um, Mm -hmm. again, as you said, for sort of the students who really want to dig into it. um, And I think it's particularly relevant for students who probably who want to go to graduate school as well. I would say, you know, you need those recommendations and things like that. So All right, let's think a little bit about um, specific programs. Like what about an engineering program? And I admit, I never worked in an institution with an engineering department, although Chicago has since added one. So this was something I didn't know anything about until I researched and talked to colleagues. So let's, let's talk about, you know, some of the ways, some of the things you might pay attention to regarding an engineering program. I think some of that is going to have to do with accreditation. If the engineering is something you're hoping to then later become an engineer, you're going to want to have that ABET accreditation in the department you're considering. And then also making sure that the ABET approved degree that you're going to receive is in your discipline, the area that you want to be in. Not just that school has it for some of their departments, but what about your discipline? Is that something that is actually accredited? Mm-hmm. All right. And so what about uh, business programs? 
That also has its own accreditation as well. And there are a couple of different, different ones out there. So you want to ask the school about what is their accreditation and look to see um, is that satisfying what you want, especially if you're interested in the field of accounting, where it's really going to matter for licensure and uh, ability to actually practice as a CPA after you've completed the correct number of credits. Then you probably also want to make sure that the specific interests that you have are really well represented at the school. So this is a, an example that just came from one of our, our colleagues, uh, Sally, uh, your, one of our colleagues. Um, one of their sons was looking at a marketing and finance program uh, during his college search. And they were looking at the program at UConn, and they realized that it had real strengths in healthcare management and real estate. But that, and that's wonderful for students who are interested in healthcare management and real estate. But what he was really more interested in, again, in marketing and finance, they really weren't at his level of expectation. So sort of understanding what the nuance is then within a particular program, getting specific to your particular department, not just, okay, what about business? What about engineering? But what specifically, let's say, about civil engineering? What specifically about marketing within business? And again, this applies more to the student who really knows and has a real nuanced sense of exactly what they want to study. Let's not over uh, inflate that importance and make all these poor juniors and sophomores panic thinking like, oh my goodness, I don't know exactly what I want to study. This is really just here for the student who does know, who has a bit of a sophisticated level of knowledge about their industry and field of what they're interested in. For the student who's just generally interested in business, you might be more interested to learn about well, what sort of introductory courses do they have in the business department? Are they are all first-year students going to take a semester-long course that gives them a little bit of uh, exposure? Maybe they spend a week and throughout the 14 weeks of the first semester diving into each of the different arms of the business world to understand what is marketing? What is management? What is uh, you know, X, Y, or Z? So they get a little exposure. And a lot of business and engineering programs have such kinds of classes. And maybe that sort of piece is going to be a more important factor for the student who's a little bit more undecided than how uh, in-depth is their level of microscope offerings in the lab. So it's really going to depend, again, our favorite word here, I think, at College Coach, it depends <laughs> on what the student's interests are, how it's sophisticated or developed or specific or nuanced for those interests. And then how does that align with what the school has? Okay. And I'd, I'd like to close out now, and we only have about a minute, but why not just use rankings like U.S. News and World Report? Can you kind of give just a quick soundbite about why those are maybe not so valuable? Well, I think it's a great tool for collecting data points, but it's just data, and it doesn't necessarily align with how you're going to interpret that data and form opinions off of those facts. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of great schools that don't even participate in the rankings out there, and then you also have a lot of schools that kind of cook the books a little bit in terms of, well, some of flat out cheated and made up numbers, uh, and they've been called out in trouble for things like that. But others uh, get a little bit creative with how they report numbers, leaving out segments of their population to sort of inflate where the rankings might apply. At the end of the day, these rankings and these ratings only are as helpful to the level at which they're 
factors and variables utilized happen to align exactly and identically with your priorities and your deal breakers and your factors to consider. So until you mm-hmm. can really get at exactly what's going into that ranking and exactly where that data is coming from and exactly how you're going to interpret that data, I much rather you develop your own ranking, your own rubric to help decide what's going to be the absolute best number one school for you as opposed to your neighbor or your friend or your cousin. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Tova. My pleasure, Sally. Have a good one. Okay. We're going to take a short break now, but when we get back, we'll be talking to Emily Tofelmeyer about her transfer experience. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Hi, Emily. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Sally. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Um, All right. So what I want to kind of ask you about is your personal transfer experience, because I know that you started at one school, it didn't work out great, then you went to another one, and that one was much, much better. So maybe you could just sort of start taking us through it. Like, how did you end up? Where did you where did you start out at? And how did you pick that first school? Um, Very haphazardly. Um, (laughs) I If you're a parent listening and you have a straggler student, this can be maybe a good story to share with them. Um, The second semester of my high school, high school senior year, I decided that I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to college right away. 
I had a part-time job that I loved at Borders Books, if you <laughs> remember Borders. Um, and I had the option to go full-time after graduation if I wanted to, and that was appealing to me. So I decided I wasn't going to apply to college. And then about May of senior year, I changed my mind. And lucky for me, my local public university had what's called rolling admission. So Sally, obviously you know what rolling admission is, but for our listeners who don't know, um, it basically means that a school starts admitting students pretty early on, like maybe you could apply the summer before your senior year and be admitted in maybe August or September, but it also means these schools have a very late deadline. So for my rolling admission school, the deadline wasn't until August after my senior year, which is very late. Yes. And no, no, this was a, this was a not especially selective school that might have something to do with it. So mm-hmm. I was able to apply for college in May or June, I think is when I decided to do that, was able to be admitted really quickly, but there was zero research that went into it. It wasn't a fit school for me as far as, you know, social life or campus or anything went, but it was the option that I had 10 miles away from home. Mm-hmm. So I took it. So that was the extent of my college research. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to say that we do advise that people do more research than that. And uh, I think it sounds like Emily would agree with that. So Emily, tell me kind of then what didn't work about it. I mean, I it, it's always a possibility that people can just like the local university that they go to with no research works great for them. But this one really didn't work for you. What were those reasons? Me. I, I was really the reason. I didn't make any effort to get engaged on campus or I didn't join any clubs. Um, I would drive from my parents' house to campus, park in a huge parking lot, walk to my classes, walk back to my car and drive away. So Mm -hmm. I didn't even stop at the dining halls or the cafes. I didn't hang out on the quad. I just did nothing related to campus life. And obviously because of that, I think I made one friend the whole year. Um, I also, I I was working a lot. I chose to keep my part-time job and I was working 32 hours a week. Um, And they were swing shifts, meaning Mm -hmm. I was working three to midnight. So I had a job the rest of college, too, but I was sure to reduce my hours. And I think 32 is just way too much for any full-time college student. So Mm -hmm. the key factor here and why it didn't work was me. I had friends who went to the same school later who, one, became student body president. Like, clearly, there were ways to get involved, (laughs) and I chose not to. So I was really an example of, like, how not to be a commuter student, It's hard for commuters to get involved because of transportation and needing to be off campus and maybe working, but I just was an example of how not to get involved. So if you are thinking of being a commuter campus, you can be student body president and get really involved, but you just have to take the initiative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even on campuses that are almost 100% commuter or fully 100% commuter, like many community colleges, although not all getting involved is the way to really be successful. So I'm really glad to hear you say that. Um, all right. So then what happened when you decided to transfer? What, what, what was that process like? Um, I was again, a straggler in this case, I was always <laughs> making last minute decisions as a teenager, apparently. So, um, in the spring of my freshman year, my dad was aware that I wasn't happy at that time. My parents knew that. Um, and I have a parent who lived in another state where I had been born. So she had an address there. So because of that, my dad said, hey, you seem pretty miserable. Do you want to see if you could get in-state tuition at that other college? And I called the registrar's office and it was actually able to do that. So that was a huge, uh, clearly finances were a big motivation for my family. We were looking for the cheapest college experience possible. So I was able to apply, I think in March or April of my freshman year, again, taking advantage of a rolling admission policy at school number two. 
Um, and the admission process for me was very easy, just like my first college. It was basically a piece of paper that I filled out and mailed and then sent in my transcripts and test scores. The internet was a little, a little uh, less happening back then. Um, so I sent all that stuff in, was admitted really quickly. So that was easy. But when I got to campus, I had to really fight for some of my credits to transfer, which is a word of warning. If you're a student who's thinking of starting at one four-year, moving to another four-year, the system is not designed for you to transfer easily. Um, when I worked at University of Southern California, I had a lot of California students who would say, hey, I was denied. I want to transfer later. Should I go to this four-year university that accepted me? Or should I go to a California community college? And I would always say community college. If you're really sure you want to transfer and you want a really clean transfer process, do that. Because for me, I had meeting after meeting with department chairs, administrators, registrars. I even had the states me. I had to go to the library and pull microfiche of school number one's course catalog so that I could print out a description of a course to show a department chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can be really strict. And I'm sure that the school that you went to, which, um, you know, you can say the name of it if you want to, since you had a good experience. We won't yeah. say the name of the first one, but like University of Arkansas, you mm-hmm. the one you transferred to and you really liked it. So I think we can mm-hmm. say good things about it. Um, but yeah, they, they're, they, um, they're probably very well set up to, tra- f- to take transfers from their in-state community college, but not from another state another four-year college, or frankly, even probably another, even if you've gone to community college at in the first place that you were. So um, I think that's really important to note. Um, all right, but it sounds like it worked out if you were persistent. Um, so I think yes. that's a good tip too. Yeah, and it was also my own battle. When you're in college, you know, as a parent, even though you might want to chime in and call those department chairs and registrars, It's not really your place to do it anymore, partly because of FERPA privacy rules, but partly your student is a young adult and needs to figure out how to handle administrative frustration on their own. So that was a good lesson for me. It was an epic battle that my family still talks about to this day, but it worked (laughs) out. Um, And my campus experience was much better, too, because I had learned from my previous experience of what not to do as a college student. Um, and as a transfer student, pe- right, people feel like there's challenges there too socially. That how do you get involved when everybody already knows each other? Um, but that really didn't feel like the case at my campus. There was about 15,000 people. So there were students of all ages and transfers. And uh, just by going to the involvement fair, joining a couple of clubs, I was able to kind of find my people, you know, carve out my corner of campus um, in a way that I really didn't try at school number one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that's really important. Like, what were some of the activities that you joined? And did you feel at all unwelcome because you hadn't been there from the beginning? I think often students feel like they're not going to be welcome as a transfer student. So um, Arkansas was smart in the way that they placed their transfer students in housing. So I was in a dorm with uh, my roommate was a transfer student from a community college in Arkansas. Uh, The rest of the people in my building, a lot of them were transfer students or were international or athletes. So it was a mix of kind of non-traditional people anyway. So I felt like we were all in the same boat. Um, But I also made a point to get outside of the dorm and join clubs as well. Uh, Because on paper, Arkansas was not a fit for me socially, politically, any of those things. Um, But I identified clubs that kind of made sense for me and where I thought I could find my people. So I went to an involvement fair. I joined um, a a startup campus radio station. 
um, a literary and arts magazine that was just starting up as well. By the second semester, I took one semester off of working, and then I got a job at the campus newspaper. So by joining those three things, I found people with similar interests, and it also exposed me to a scene, a larger scene within the college town of of music and arts and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So even though on paper, the school wasn't a fit for me, and we talk so much about fit with students, I think my experience was kind of proof that, okay, on paper, a school might not look 100% perfect for you, but if you have a good attitude and just make an effort to find your crowd, then you can make it work. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And I will say, and I'm somebody who loves the small liberal arts colleges, but I think that um, a larger university is probably going to be more flexible in that way, that there really is a little bit of everybody. So that experience, it might not work as well at a smaller college because you really need to do the research and make sure that it's your people who are there. Um, But at a large school, I mean, you can go to UC Berkeley, which is known for being liberal and find hardcore Republicans. You really, really can. And Arkansas, you can find hardcore liberals. So it's like everybody's going to be there. It's totally fine. Um, All right. So it sounds like the really the key thing, though, was absolutely just being involved. The other thing I was thinking about, though, you commented that University of Arkansas does a good job of kind of putting you of sort of where they put your housing. So they had some kind of a system in place for transfer students. Um, Is that accurate? Well, they did a good job of it, but I don't know if I can say for sure that it was planned. Uh, There's also a chance that a lot of us ended up there because we applied a little bit late (laughs) in the game. Um, The the dorm was not the nicest. It had a reputation for being kind of at a a corner of campus that was a little inconvenient, and it was not the prettiest, nicest new campus or dorm. So I think there might have just been accidental kind of happiness that resulted. (laughs) So I can't say that they were super on top of it, but the weird mix of people they put in that dorm, we all ended up getting along really well together. Um, and you asked too, if there was any sense of, did I feel not shunned necessarily, but like an outsider coming in when other people had been there? If anything, it was the opposite. It was very welcoming. And the fact that I was from about 1200 miles away made me a novelty. Mm-hmm. Um, people were really surprised to hear where I was from and had questions about what I was doing there, but it made <laughs> for a really great icebreaker. Right. Like you came here from where and why did you do that? Um, Part of the reason I wanted to highlight, by the way, kind of what the transfer process might have been like is that there are some schools that have a large percentage of transfers and seem to do a really good job with it. So like if you're planning on transferring into Penn State, I think it's something like 50 percent of their graduating class is transfers. So like you absolutely don't need to worry about that. But I think the good news actually is that at most colleges, people kind of love transfers at the small college that I went to, Reed College, like, you know, it was it was really fun to sort of see that new face and be like, hello, who are you? What are you doing here? Where did you come from? You know, I always really enjoyed um, kind of working with the transfers um, also when I was an admissions officer and, and never really saw them, you know, having a problem like acclimating actually. So so your your experience sounds pretty valid to me. The main thing though is get involved, especially if you don't live on campus. It's really, really crucial to get involved. Yes, that made a huge difference for me. I also mentioned too at USC, uh, we we had a lot of transfer students. We were a private school that actually had a pretty healthy population of transfer students, mostly from California and community colleges. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would meet some of these students and they would sometimes say to me, oh, I feel like since I'm a transfer student, it's different. And I would remind them that nobody knows you're a transfer student unless you say it out loud. Right. 
especially at a school with 18,000 people. Like you're not walking around with a scarlet tea. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So I would remind those students, you don't have to bring it up to people. You can just seamlessly blend into the crowd here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, even, yeah, again, at my small college, I knew who the transfers were because I worked with them. But often students were just like, unless they moved into the dorm newly, like people didn't know. So, Um, all right, great. Well, thank you so much, Emily. This is really, really helpful today. So before we, by the way, before we get started, um, or before I do sort of my my final outro, I wanted to talk a little bit about my college, which is Reed College. Um, very well known for self-motivated and intellectually curious students. We're all about a genuine love of learning, and it might be a really ideal fit if you have a student who is all about a genuine love of learning. Um, Reed has always encouraged students to discover new passions in a dema- demanding and intense academic environment. Um, it is a school of about 1,400, and although people think of liberal arts colleges as being stronger in the humanities, um, which is, of course, really strong at Reed. Mathematics and sciences are very popular, and actually a really high percentage of Reedies go on to pursue graduate work in those fields. In fact, and I always love to tell people about this, Reed ranks among the top five American institutions in the percentage of students who go on to earn PhDs in the fields of math and science, according to the National Science Foundation. And that's in spite of the fact that they don't even offer an engineering degree. So um, another thing to know is that Reed has one of the strongest core curriculums in the in the country, it's somewhat similar to Columbia's. Um, they have a first year humanities course, which takes students from the ancient Mediterranean to the rise of the Roman Empire. Um, so, and it also has a senior thesis requirement, full year senior thesis that every student does. Um, and other fun facts: Reed wrote, Reed boasts thirty one Rhodes Scholars. Um, which is the third highest of any U.S. liberal arts college, and nearly 90 Fulbright recipients and three um, MacArthur Fellows. So lots and lots of good stuff going on there. All right. Um, Thank you so much, Emily. And um, so everybody, get ready for our show on April 9th when we'll be answering listener questions and addressing COVID-19 in the financial aid process. And if you want more information about how to handle the admission process in the time of COVID-19, please check out our show from March 26th. Our host, Ian Fisher, and school senior discussed how she is making her final decision as to which college to attend, even though she can't visit again. So that should be pretty interesting to people. And remember, if you're looking for specific topics in our archives, um, you can search for them using our blogs. Um, the Euro- URL for that is blog.getintocollege.com. Um, and last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.